Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Some of you guys weren't here last week, but I gave kind of the first part of this message. This is kind of part two, covering the first 16 verses of Ephesians 4. And the, the theme, the message... You can go back and listen to it, was on individuality and community and kind of the the tensions present within those and then also the invitation I think that Paul's inviting us to as the church of how the differentiation of gifts and roles and then the unity of the body actually brings maturity, gives us stability, gives us clarity of purpose and sense of calling and then the cost, what it costs you to be part of a community like that is conflict and some of your individual rights. That was part one. And the whole second half of Ephesians is basically kind of transitions on this big therefore that Hulst introduced. And then Paul has this line, he says, therefore live a life worthy of the calling. So Ephesians one through three was Paul outlining the calling. And then four, five, six is what it looks like to live worthy in light of that calling. And really simply there's an individual component and a corporate component to this calling, right? Brandon, Brandon taught on this in Ephesians 2. The individual component is that you are holy, chosen, blessed, loved, unique, called as an individual. And then the corporate component is that Jesus has unified us, right? We said last week, the same blood runs through the whole body. The same blood atones, liberates, and adopts. So... Those are Paul, Paul's taking those as like baseline realities. Whether we, whether we believe them or not day in, day out, Paul's saying this is what's most true. He's prophesying almost these truths. And now how are we going to live in light of that? And the title of our message today is Pleasure, Power, and Meaning. That is a little provocative. <laughs> and we're going to unpack. These are, there's these two huge sections of text. I'm going to try and give a little reflection on each of them, and then I'll do some nerding out on a little bit of cultural reflection, and then we'll end really practical. And I brought my books and my whiteboard again. This is what happens when I actually have time to prepare a message. Instead of me rambling, I write like a chapter of a book. So you get a bunch of quotes and a bunch of fun things. Okay, does that sound good? Ten minutes, ten minutes, five minutes. So, first part of scripture. Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 20. And I'm not going to read all this because we don't have time. It's a lot of text to cover. But I'll just read a few sections as we go through this. So to kick us off, the first five or six verses here. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We'll talk about that today. 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So I think the first part, I love this, guys. Paul, Paul's like the ancient world's Brene Brown. You know, he's, he's just, he's clued in, he's aware, he understands emotions, and he sees this connection playing out in the lives of real people that he's walking with between sensuality and sensitivity, between what we do with our bodies and what we do in the body, the choices we make, and our awareness emotionally, spiritually. And he sees this connection between the two, and then he invites us to put on this new identity. And the whole framework of Ephesians, again, this is an identity book. Paul's talking about our true identity. And this language here of putting on and putting off, this is identity language. In the ancient world, even more so than today, in the ancient world, what you wore represented who you were. It was, it was a signifier of your status and vocational role in the world. Nowadays, you could be like, you know, some guy wears a t-shirt and shorts and he owns a tech company and he's a millionaire, right? It's a little bit harder to distinguish, but we still see it, right? Clothes represent identities, inner realities. And Paul's saying, put off that old identity that you used to have before, when you were in the dark, before we had heard the new identity, and live different. Okay, and then verses 425 to 514, big section. This is, we're not going to read this part, but this is the sin section. And he opens this section by saying, he reminds us of what he talked about in Ephesians 4, that you are all members of one body, and now live this way. And then he goes through all these sins and all these good things that we should do, right? This is the old self contrasted with the new self. So let me just give, I'll just read, I made a little table so we don't have to read it. Instead of telling lies, speak truth. Instead of sinning out of anger, bring peace. Instead of being a thief, be generous. Instead of gossiping, coarse joking, and negativity, speak encouragement, speak life. I'd probably add to that, prophesy to one another, sing psalms and everything else Paul will talk about. Instead of seeking revenge, offer forgiveness. Instead of promiscuity, sexual promiscuity, and being casual about your sexuality, exert self-control. Instead of giving yourself to drunkenness, be filled with the Spirit and singing. Okay, and I promise you this list is not comprehensive. We can think of plenty of other ways outside of these boundaries, right? And the heart of this list, many of us maybe intentionally or not probably were raised or at one point or another came to believe that this is like a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's like Santa's naughty list, right? How many this week did I accumulate on either side and we tally them up to weigh the scales? And please, 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 I do not think that's a helpful way to talk about sin or to think about sin. So let me offer you a different way to think about what's going on here. Great book by a Roman Catholic guy named Ronald Rollheister. So I'm talking, this is getting at a little bit of the root beneath sin. What leads to sin or what leads to this righteousness and holiness that Paul's talking about. Whatever the expression, everyone is ultimately talking about the same thing. An unquenchable fire, a restlessness, a longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia, a wildness that cannot be tamed. A congenital, all-embracing ache that lies at the center of the human experience and this ultimate force that drives everything else. This disease is universal. Desire. 
gives no exemptions. Long before we do anything explicitly religious at all, we have to do something about that fire that burns within us. What we do with that fire, how we channel it, that's our spirituality. Thus, we all have a spirituality, whether we want one or not, whether we're religious or not. Spirituality is far more about whether or not we can sleep at night than about whether or not we go to church. And I love this this framework that's introducing underneath the root of our behavior, it's much more about these desires and sometimes deceitful desires than it is about just completing or not completing an objective list of stats or behavioral modification. And I think what I've learned about sin, pretty good at it, (laughs) what I've noticed and learned about sin is that it's almost always, whether it's explicitly behavioral or whether it's internally hidden, it's almost always symptomatic of something deeper. It's almost always symptomatic of something deeper. It's an identity issue. Okay, so we're gonna, in the second half, we're gonna unpack a little bit what's going on under the hood. And, and I'd offer you this for yourself, and please, please, especially for others, allow sin, when you see someone lighting up one side of this list over the other, allow it to serve more as a dashboard indicator light, like on a car, than a behavioral checklist by which we should judge or make value statements of people. So when, when we sin or when others sin, would we please have the grace to know, oh, there's something going on under the hood. Because when people are believing this thing Paul's prophesying to us, that you are chosen, you're loved, you're called, you're unique, and you're a part of a body, you're not alone. You've been adopted. When, when people believe that, they don't sin. Okay, the next section here we'll come back to, 15 through 21, kind of this middle linking paragraph. We'll focus on that in the, in the second half. The next part, I love this, I had to cover it. Katie's preaching next week, and which she's uh, tried every way she could to get out of. Uh, even right now, before we came up, she's like, oh, babe, you know, that was maybe enough. If you want to just, you can preach next week, and I'll just, okay? But when we talked, sorry, I just threw you under the bus. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. We just needed some, we needed some laughs. Okay, okay. So when we were discussing, of course, uh, who wants to teach? Who wants to teach the passage on um, slaves and male dominance and all this? Of course, it got dropped to me. Thanks, everyone. So, verse twenty-one through six-nine here. I call this the hierarchies passage. And a little caveat, there's differing views, especially on male-female roles within the body of Christ across denominations. Some of you might come from different denominations. You might have had whole seasons of life in certain denominations, but there's different doctrines of how that's played out in the functionality of a church, especially. Who's allowed to be a head pastor? Who's not? Karam Deo, and then our broader church family has a core value and commitment to allowing leadership to be identified by gifting, calling, and choice regardless of gender. But I understand, I'm very aware, a lot of ink has been spilt, many books have been written engaging in that topic. So if, if that's something you're interested in talking more about, book giveaway. <laughs> you don't have to come up now, come one, come all, but after the gathering, 
Um, this is a great book. This is one of my favorite books. I keep like copies of these on my shelf, and I, I literally just give them away like hotcakes. So there's 17 chapters in this book uh, that goes through basically controversial theological issues within mostly, I'd say, Protestant uh, Christianity. And there's a chapter on this very subject. So if you're interested in that, you can have this book, and then it's full package deal. It comes with a coffee date with me. I know, I know, it's too much. <laughs> I have more copies too, so don't. It's not exclusive. Okay, here's the, for time's sake, here's the only verse I want to read. Verse 21, 521. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's actually a bad translation. What that actually says is submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then, the new paragraph Paul goes to the three areas in his societal, cultural framework where people fail to operate in submission to one another mutually. Men and women in marriage, parents and kids, slaves and masters. And we'll come back to this a few times. This is what Paul's saying. Hey, guess what? All you humans, you're on the same plane. And this is God. People, people. <laughs> Submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And I cannot see that Paul is endorsing the abuse of hierarchical power or lording over someone else. He's introducing us to the new power paradigm of the kingdom of God. And a book written in close proximity to Ephesians, the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Let me just read five verses here. This is, what, this is what God thinks of hierarchy and holding power over others. This is what God thinks. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, chapter 2, verse 3, or in vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you in the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, that's us humans, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. And here's the beautiful thing that's happening here. Ephesians chapter 1, for those that were here, I taught on this, how in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, there's this cosmology of hierarchy. And at the very top is God. And then there's these lesser deities, spirits. I forgot my backup markers. Spirits, <laughs> angels, principalities and powers, right? And then there's a clear break. And then you have human rulers, maybe military leaders, and the average plebeian in the ancient world, plebs. And then at the, underneath that, you might have slaves, women, children. And then at the very bottom, criminals. And this, guys, this is so big. Do you know what God thinks of hierarchy? This fear of the Lord? He becomes the criminal. This is how God does hierarchy. He puts on flesh and he becomes publicly defamed 
embarrassed, mocked, ridiculed, and murdered. And he says, this is what power actually looks like. And so I would say from this passage to us, in the places of your life where we exert authority over others, would we have fear of the Lord about the stewardship because we recognize the value in others. Would we live worthy? All right. I don't know if that's the coffee or Amy's fire or if I'm just shaking. So, how do we connect these two sections of Scripture? The pleasure section about all the sins, the naughty list, and then the power section about those in positions of authority. Well, naturally, like everyone else, when, we read, when you read this section, I thought of early 20th century psychoanalytics. Naturally, right, Ben? So last week we talked a little sociology in the latter half. This week we're going to do a little psychology. And honestly, psychology is just the secular child of Christianity and specifically the field of theology and pastoral ministry. When we look back at the history, and, and both are concerned with two things, human behavior and then how we change human behavior. And they're interested in what I alluded to at the beginning of what's going on under the hood when people do what they do or feel what they feel, think what they think. Quick little history lesson, just for fun. Three kind of big names at the turn of the century into the early half of the 20th century. Sigmund Freud, Alfred Adler, and Viktor Frankl. Freud, Freud, uh, Adler. Come on, Alex. I want to hear. Some, where's Alex? I want some preach. Uh, and Frankl. Wow, this is so sad. My marker. Hang on. Oh. Wow. Wow. It feels so good. It's taking everything in me to not go retrace that, too. (laughs) Just letting you know. Um, Okay, so really simply, these three theorists, and none of them are wholly right, and I'm sure we have better, more modern, advanced theories, but I think culturally these are embedded in our worldview as Westerners, and so we can glean from them some insight. So Freud, he's the nature guy. Mr. Deterministic. So these innate hard drives, mostly sex and anger, but then your early formation in the first few years of life, they pretty much set you on trajectory and course to be and do the things you will in life. So he's very deterministic. And then a guy named Adler comes after him. And Adler says, well, that's kind of true, but there's a little more nuance to it because your nurturing environment also forms you, right? So he's a little more open. You're not just locked in, hardwired. You can change. And specifically, Adler focuses on this sense of inferiority that we all have, and then our drive to overcome that inferiority, okay? 
And then lastly, Frankel. Frankel basically says, well, first of all, Frankel's a survivor of four Nazi concentration camps. He's a, he's a Jewish guy. And he said, no, 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 no. I sat in those camps and I watched people all day who in their predeterministic natural impulse and in the circumstances and the nurturing of that horrendous environment they were in should have chosen to do certain things like self-preservation at the expense of others, and they didn't. They saw a greater meaning, or we could say, choice. And, and I love this. I think this is helpful for all of us to just say, anytime you see behavior of anyone outside of you in yourself, to know that it's at least some cocktail of nature, nurture, and choice. I don't know the breakdown, I don't know the percentages, but all three are in there. So, Freud, your innate impulses drive behaviors seeking pleasure. So it's your nature to seek pleasure. Adler, your sense of inferiority drives you to seek a sense of superiority, power. And then Frankel, as long as you see a sense of meaning and purpose in what you're doing, you can choose to rise above those two drives, these deceitful desires, and live differently. Okay, I'm sure it's really clear where I'm going with this. So let me read one other little chapter or paragraph here in the middle of Ephesians 5. Verse 15 to 21. Ah, uh, sorry, 17. Therefore, don't be foolish, Paul says, but understand the Lord's will. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whew. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. Now, hypothetically, some of us maybe have had more than one or two drinks of alcohol, hypothetically. What happens, in theory, when you consume large amounts of alcohol? It's almost like the, the floor in the room tilts and we become inclined to some of those natural impulses. And the ability to have judgment and self-control over those impulses seems to be inhibited and we just kind of fall into them. And we also get very present focused. We're just in the moment. We're not thinking about tomorrow. I'd say that's a large reason why many people drink alcohol, right? Okay, and then what's this business about submitting to one another? Sorry, Adler. Not, not so among us. The gospel communicates the opposite message of what most of us, the messaging we receive from our nurturing upbringing. This idea that we're inferior. And God says, no, you're not. You're holy, you're blameless, you're chosen, you're loved. And you're actually not alone. You're a part of this family and this community where your different differentiation, your gifts, your special unique things, they're needed. I need Amy Holst to lead me into fiery, loud places of prayer because naturally I'm going to hide in my office with my books, right? We need each other. And basically what Frankel talks about, I'm going to skip, skip our quote from Frankel, is that when a human gets consumed with a deeper identity and a sense of purpose and meaning for their life, they can overcome any circumstance or pressure or fear. 
And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, when Amy's sharing, that's what I'm hearing her say. When I lose sight of the meaning of my life, when I lose sight of God's call on my life, when I'm not hearing a prophetic word from a friend, or when I'm not being reminded of what this is all for, I slip back into the humdrum of nature and nurture. I slip back into falling victim and prey to these deceitful desires. In our nature and nurture, the crap we couldn't control and the crap that's happened to us, we're stuck in sin. We become victim to those deceitful desires, pursuing pleasure and power. But not so among us. Not so in the body of Christ. Jesus offers another way. It's the new self. And man, I, I could just tell, we could all stand here probably and tell story after story after story. Think about this. Think back in your life when there was a large shift in behavior or lifestyle. And for those who are followers of Jesus, for me, a lot of those coincide with moments where the, the, the nice rhetoric of Christianity, God's, God loves you, got plugged in through a real experience, through a stranger coming up and sharing a prophetic word, or through a quiet time where you're sitting there reading scripture and all of a sudden revelation just drops and the Holy Spirit implants this identity that Paul's been preaching about in Ephesians 1 through 3. And when our life gets filled with meaning, suddenly these things have less control over what we do, who we are. And so, in closing, kind of a, a pra- getting a little more practical, like last week, we talked about modern identity, the dilemma of some of the, some of the pitfalls of American culture idealism and individualism. And for those that weren't here, very quick recap. The modern identity basically says, here's me, and I look into my heart, and I decide who I am, and I decide what's important or what's not important, what's right or wrong, and then I look out at my communities, at God, at other places, and I get to say who I am. I'm self-defining. And then I'm also self-validating. So who am I? I get to say. And then how am I doing at that? I also get to say. And the whole kind of funny part of this is it doesn't work. It's an illusion. Because this schema of self-definition and self-validation are illusory. And I'm pondering this all week. And, and I'm also reminded of, we, we hung out with Diedrich last week a little, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, famous pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, writer. Another contemporary of all these guys, Freud, Adler, Frankel. And this is why, this is why, we, need, this is why we need to bring Bonhoeffer in here. Because even the most brilliant psychologist, as he says in this book, even the most brilliant experienced psychologist knows infinitely less about the, the problem of the human heart than a new believer who's sitting at the foot of the cross. And I'm thinking about all this, it's all running through my head, and this section comes to mind. Why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother or sister? God is holy and sinless. He is just. He's the judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But our brother or sister is sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. 
So why should we not find it easier to go to a brother or sister than to go to God? But if we do, if we do find it easier to go to God than to our fellow friends, we must ask ourselves whether or not we have often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves forgiveness and absolution. Is this not the reason perhaps for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness instead of real forgiveness? That was a lot. And it might, that, that might feel a little odd, right? I mean, some of us maybe grew up or are familiar with like Roman Catholicism and we're like, confession? Like the thing where you go and hide in that telephone booth and the mafia always plan hits? <laughs> so it might feel a little archaic, but I want us to think about what's actually happening in the process of confession. And I, I'd say confession, confession is like conflict's intentional cousin. <laughs> Last week we talked about this, the cost of community being conflict and in, to get that intimacy. And confession is just conflict. It's like when we, we intentionally walk into conflict. We go looking for it. <laughs> Here's what I did wrong. Here's where I screwed up. So it doesn't always have to, don't, let's break that little box of like a confession booth and just see this as intentionality in conflict. That's what Bonhoeffer is inviting us into. And here's what's so crazy about all this is when this modern identity thing, this thing that's in all of us in the modern age, when we try to do this self-definition, I say what's right and wrong, I say when I'm forgiven or not, we're cut off. This is what Paul's talking about, those that have lost their sensitivity and those that are in darkness. And we're stuck at the mercy of these things. And we need help. We need help getting out of that. We need the community of God and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and testify to us an identity, a meaning, a sense of purpose, a destiny to prophesy over us so that we can transcend above these deceitful desires. This idea of modern identity is an illusion. It falsely portrays us as separate and detached from God and others. It wrongly pretends that we can redefine good and evil, right and wrong, in our own eyes. And then it naively thinks that we can self-validate or self-absolve, forgive. And we cannot. And here's what confession does. Here's what conflict does. It pops the bubble and it brings us back to reality. And the, the consequences and the weight and the messiness of our sins are laid bare in front of us with our brother, our sister, our spouse, our sibling, our parent, our friend, our kids. Our sin is laid bare and we're reminded of the only hierarchy that really matters. And then the most beautiful thing hopefully happens. This doesn't always happen. But another human being looks at you, comes down, identifies with you and says, hey, it's okay. You just blew it big time. You were the worst friend in the world for the last two years. I still love you. I'm still with you. And Katie, Katie and I, early on, before we were married, had a couple interactions. First one, and I'll close with these stories. We're sitting in Minnesota. We're probably early 20s, about a decade ago. And we're in an argument. This is kind of par for the course in the early years. And we're sitting in this car, 
and going back and forth for a couple hours. And then finally, Katie just throws her hands up and goes, don't you get it? I'm in love with you. I'll wait as long as you need. To which I eloquently responded with, oh. <laughs> and I just gripped the steering wheel and went silent for a good 15 minutes, maybe. And she's just literally sitting in the car like, well, just told him I loved him for the first time and can't even, sit, can't even blink an eye. <laughs> and finally, I like mutter out, I mutter out under my breath, oh, I don't even know what those words mean. <laughs> not only can I not respond, I actually don't even receive it because I don't, that was gibberish to me. No compute. And then she go, she's like, well, I'm going to go inside. I meant what I said. I'll wait as long as you need. So I'm going to leave. Talk to you later. And I drive home I'm in this old rusty truck that I'm borrowing from a friend because I have no money and I don't have a car. I got no job. My pet's heads are falling off. <laughs> and, and I go over to my sister's house because I'm crashing on her couch like a vagabond. And I'm sitting in the truck and I just start crying. Which at this stage of life, 10 years ago, is still a new emotion for me, new experience. And I'm not even praying, I'm just crying, and I'm like, what's happening to me? And I hear this little soft whisper in my heart, and it says, that's how I love you. You're scared, you're afraid, you don't even know what these words mean. <laughs> that's how I love you. And a year later, full circle, Katie and I are in another parking lot, cul-de-sac actually, having another argument, and this time, the tables have turned. <laughs> and she starts repenting, literally confessing to me, all these broken, hidden, she thought what was hidden, sinful things that were going on inside of her. And I'm sitting there, and I look at her, and I go, yeah, babe, I know. I've seen that for a year and a half. And she's, and she's like, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm still here. I choose you. And then a little cliche and caveat, we're horrible dancers, but somehow, out of that moment, we went from fighting, crying, laughing, outside the car in the cul-de-sac starts, you know, the big romantic snowflakes, yeah. to dancing <laughs> in this cul-de-sac. That, it was that move, too. Just this. That was it. No, no, that's the last one. And here's the reality. The, the truth of what Paul's talking about. And I can't say this for every relationship. I can't say this for every community. I wish I could. But this is the call of the church. That we are to be a people... We're to be a safe community where people can come and bring their darkest of dark and we can accommodate them. We can identify with them. We enter into solidarity with them. We can accept each other in spite of the shit. Amy said it. Amy said it. I'll edit that out. And I'm telling you guys, this is, 
this, this conflict and this confession and this, this real, gritty, authentic intimacy that we can form with friends, family, coworkers, the church. This is what allows us to stay tender and for the truth of the gospel that you're loved, you're chosen, you're unique, you're called, and you're a part of a body. You're not alone. You've been adopted. This is how we pop the bubble and we get caught up into that reality and we're no longer stuck living for pleasure and power because we have a new meaning, we have a new king, we have a new vision, a new hope that we live for. And that's the reason I'd say we even try to do church, right? And, and this is so important because can, you, can, you can do big church, mega church, you can do small church, you can do house church, you can do D group church, you could do church in a pub, you could do church in all different ways. And it doesn't matter the size, shape, color, smell, you could miss this. Some mediums and, and structures are going to encourage it more than others. But if you don't engage, if we don't engage, we can miss it. Yeah. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.